0: You're going to love this. Just love it. Yes, I am from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, where I hope the oil has stopped leaking, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM Ridgecrest in China Lake. FM, KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. And coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app on the iTunes. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik 5 days a week. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today, Untethered from Reality. I think that maybe we will find out—I think that may be a theme uh, for today's show, not our own untetheredness from reality— uh, but, well, you'll see. Uh, before we get there, uh, some good news out here in Los Angeles from whence we broadcast. The uh, L.A. City Council the, uh, of the second largest city in the nation, Los Angeles, voted on Tuesday to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2020. Currently, the minimum wage out here is uh, $9 an hour, so uh, that should be some good news eventually, $15 an hour by 2020. <clears throat> the uh, uh, I, That's going to help everybody out here. I know the uh, businesses are going to complain and whine, and the U.S. Chamber is going to pretend this is going to put them out of business, but it won't. It never does. Whenever the minimum wage is is raised, uh, it actually turns out to be good for the economy. Why? Because there's a whole bunch more people making a whole bunch more money. And what are they doing? They're spending that money. Unlike rich people, when they get more money, they tend to sock it away in their savings or investment overseas or whatever they do. But you know what? When minimum wage workers, when they get more money, they spend more money. It goes into the economy. So that's a good thing. Uh, Good news. Bad news out here in Los Angeles. Uh, Another oil spill in Santa Barbara. Guess that's not L.A. per se, but it's only uh, an hour or two uh, up the coast. And uh, Santa Barbara, of course, is the scene of the uh, nation's worst oil. Well, actually, I, I don't, is is it the worst oil spill or the second worst now that the uh, Deepwater Horizon, does he do it?
1: Oh, I think it's now considered the third worst the oil third? spill. At, in 1969 when the Santa Barbara oil spill originally yeah. happened during the Nixon administration, that was, at the time, the worst oil spill in U.S. history. But then we had, of course, the Exxon Valdez that then ah, uh, spilled up in okay. Puget Sound near Seattle. Um, I'm but sorry. But that's not... Uh, uh, not Puget Sound, up in Alaska. What uh, am I Valdez, saying? The uh, Valdez. Yes, uh, the Valdez. Prince
0: William Sound.
1: Prince William Sound. Yes. And then after that, it was, of course, the BP oil disaster in the Gulf. Yeah. That was, of course, the worst.
0: Um, anyway, the, uh, for now, we'll talk a little bit more about this a little bit later in the show. But uh, they've stopped the flow of oil from this uh, pipeline. Apparently? Yes, they so, have. They, they okay.
1: have they have closed the pipeline. All right. We'll find Cleanup up. up Continues.
0: Cleanup will continue, no doubt. Um We've got some news coming up out of Scott Walker land up in Wisconsin and his fight along with his political supporters, (laughs) including those on our public airwaves. And this is what really galls me about this. Um, uh, Him and his political supporters uh, who were using the public airwaves for their own political benefit, that fight to stay out of legal trouble up there in Wisconsin, continues and uh, uh, turns reality on its head. More on that and, and maybe some listener email a little bit later if I, if I don't run out of time here. Bradcast at bradblog.com is our email. Or you can just follow us on the Twitters or the Facebook at the TheBradBlog. Uh, we, we talk a lot about reality, reality on this show about facts, about independently verifiable facts. No matter whose ox gets gored, facts are facts. And lately, uh, last week or so, we've been talking about the facts of Iraq and the facts of the fact that we went to war, uh, not because of faulty intelligence, but because the George W. Bush administration wanted to go to war, despite whatever intelligence we did have. We talk about the facts of climate change. Whether you like it or not, whether you, uh, w- no matter what you think we ought to do about it, facts are facts. Scientific facts are independently verifiable when it comes to, to climate change. We've been talking about the facts about the uh, Trans Pacific Partnership or TPP, or at least trying to talk about those facts, given the fact that the Obama administration has an absurdly ridiculous secrecy policy surrounding it. Uh, I've got some more on on that. We may get into it uh, today if I have some more time uh, and, and some just absurd claims about it from Democrats like Diane Feinstein. Uh, there's a real split in the Democratic Party about that TPP right now. Uh, we'll see if we can get to that today. We'll also, as I said, be joined uh, in a bit by Sue Wilson to discuss the reality of both Scott Walker and the FCC as they try to turn reality upside down, turn the First Amendment on its head. But yes, untethering from reality is now very much at the front and center of our political discourse, it seems. Uh, Thanks not only to the renewed debate, and I put that in quotes, debate about Iraq and about uh, how all of the Republican candidates for president seem to still be pretending that W was working from faulty intelligence. He wasn't or that the war uh, wasn't a mistake. Of course, it was more than a mistake. It was a crime, as we've discussed on this show. But I want to deal with another new data point today along this theme uh, concerning yet another Republican candidate for the 2016 nomination who is now seemingly becoming untethered from reality. And we'll have some audio on this because it's rather amazing. But uh, to get here, I want to take a bit of a dive, I realize, into into the rabbit hole of wingnut Twitter troll land for a moment to look just at how far one huge segment of the U.S. population has now become untethered from facts and from reality above and beyond politics, just untethered from reality and therefore how much more difficult it makes it to solve actual problems and challenges that we face because we are not arguing about what to do about the facts. We are arguing about what the facts actually are in the first place. We're not even arguing about it. We've got one set of facts, and then we've got uh, you know other people pretending these facts don't exist. So a... Uh, a Twitter exchange I had uh, over the past uh, last night, I guess, and over the past few hours, kind of exemplifies this. So, I, I, some somebody had uh, tweeted something, a uh, a graphic image uh, of uh, a picture of Prescott Bush, George W. Bush's and Jeb Bush's great, uh, not great grand, their grandfather, their grandfather, and uh, the father of. Um, the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch. So a, a picture of those two guys. It says, Grandpa Bush made a fortune financing Hitler. Grandpa Koch made a fortune working for Stalin. And then they add, that moment you realize Republicans have been making deals with the devil since before you were born. And this comes from uh, some group called Americans Against the Republican Party. Now, uh you may you know you may find that obnoxious i guess i don't know you may uh you may even disagree with the fact that uh prescott bush helped uh finance hitler made a fortune for hitler and you can argue why he didn't i guess you could say the same about uh, the Koch's grandfather but the fact is if you bother to actually look at the facts yes Grandpa Bush made a fortune financing Hitler and Grandpa Koch made a fortune working for Stalin. And yet this guy on uh, some right wing guy, I don't know, uses a a pseudonym McBob is what he calls himself. He replied back after I retweeted that uh, that graphic, which is absolutely true. He retweeted, he replied to me and he said, what a vile person to post such a thing. Is that how desperate American Bridge and Hillary are? You want to play with Joe Kennedy? Now, uh, American Bridge is is a group uh, uh, allied with uh, Democrats that basically follows around uh, campaigns, uh, Republican campaigns, gets them on videotape as they give public speeches and, and releases those videos and so forth. Um, obviously, I have nothing to do with American Bridge, that group. I have nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. Uh, so I'm a vile person because I posted that graphic, according to McBob. He says you want to play with Joe Kennedy. I guess he's talking about the fact that uh, uh, I guess the Kennedys' great great grandfather was a was a bootlegger and so forth. Uh, okay, whatever. I don't understand why uh, that it makes me vile to post that fact. The fact that Prescott Bush was involved with Hitler. Uh, at least made a fortune of financing uh, the rise to power of the Third Reich. It's not really in question. Uh, the Coke, uh, the Coke grandfather who who worked for Stalin built oil fields out there. That's not really in question. As a matter of fact, he came out of it saying that uh, he learned to despise Stalin because of it. Okay, so you can argue that uh, the Bushes didn't support uh, Hitler and what Hitler did. You could argue that the Koch brothers don't support what Stalin did in in Stalinist Russia. Okay, but these are facts. These are just facts. I replied back to McBob on the Twitter. I said, facts are vile now, huh? He said, uh, sweeping shock accusations don't equal facts. Plus, you intentionally uh, imply intent, which is a lie. I said, sorry, you are shocked by factual assertions. Facts seem clearly troubling for folks like yourself, and I understand why in this case. He says, implying intentionally supported to Hitler is about as low as you can go after claiming Mitt killed a lady. What? What the hell is he talking Mitt killed a lady? He goes on to say, that is the topic of your discourse on Romney Bush, while whining that people lay off Hillary tells us all we need to know about the left. Now, I haven't said anything about laying off Hillary. You can go after Hillary all you want. Do me a favor, though. Do it with facts. That's what I do. Uh, I don't know what this has to do with my discourse about Romney and Bush. Uh, He goes on to say that uh, you conveniently forgot Dems fraudulently claiming Mitt killed a female employee due to her dropping her health insurance I don't even know what this guy's talking about he has now become so untethered from reality because he was troubled with the facts about the Bush family and uh, Hitler for and by the way okay just uh, because I, I I you know for people who are unaware of it this is from The Guardian documented this back in 2004. British U.K. Guardian George Bush's grandfather, the late U.S. Senator Prescott Bush, was a director and shareholder of companies that profited from their involvement with the financial backers of Nazi Germany. The Guardian has obtained confirmation from newly discovered files back in 2004 in the U.S. National Archives that a firm of which Prescott Bush was a director was involved with the financial architects of Nazism. His business dealings, which continued until his company's assets were seized in 1942 under the Trading with the Enemy Act, has led more than 60 years uh, later to a civil action for damages brought in Germany against the Bush family by two former slave laborers at Auschwitz. The evidence also prompted one former U.S. Nazi war crimes prosecutor to argue that the late uh, senators—he was a senator, uh, Senator Prescott Bush— to argue that the late senator's actions should have been grounds for prosecution for giving aid and comfort to the enemy. You can go into the details, a very detailed story based on uh, independently verifiable records from the U.S. uh, National Archives. And one U.S. attorney who prosecuted Nazi war crimes in the 70s is quoted in this article. He says you can't blame Bush for what his grandfather did any more than you can blame Jack Kennedy for what his father did. But what is important is the cover-up, how it could have gone on so successfully for half a century, and does that have implications for us today, he asks. A guy by the name of John Loftus. He says this was the mechanism by which Hitler was funded to come to power. This was the mechanism by which the Third Reich's defense industry was rearmed. This was the mechanism by which Nazi profits were repatriated back to the American owners. This was the mechanism by which investigations into the financial laundering of the Third Reich were blunted, said Loftus, who is vice chair of the Holocaust Museum in St. Petersburg. So these are just facts. And this guy went nuts. Because he doesn't like the facts and he's, you know, under the impression that these facts are not reality. He's not arguing uh, that, uh, they, you know, they didn't know anything about it. They you know, it has nothing to do with today's politics. He's just arguing it never happened. They've become untethered with reality. He's just one guy, of course. So I'm not suggesting that everyone who is a Republican or every right wing uh, pseud- uh, pseudonymous troll on Twitter is untethered from reality. But I think they are all untethered from reality after a decade at least of uh, Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and pretending that facts are not facts, which is what they did when they went into the war in Iraq, which is what they are doing now, which is what Chris Christie seems to be so naturally doing in the state of New Jersey. Just untethered from reality, untethered from some very bad news. A Quinnipiac poll uh, in late April found that New Jersey voters disapprove of Chris Christie and the job he's doing uh, as governor, 56 to 38 percent. It's his lowest approval rating ever. It's the lowest approval rating for any governor This year, in the nine states that are surveyed by Quinnipiac, his numbers are terrible. Uh, majority uh, believes that he is not honest, he's not trustworthy. Uh, a a majority believes that he does not care about their needs and problems. If here we go, 57 to 34 percent, he's got 57 to 34 percent approval for his handling of the economy and job. Other way around, actually, 34 disapproved, 57. Let me get that right. Thirty four approve. Fifty seven disapprove of his handling of the economy and jobs. Fifty six disapprove of his handling of education. Fifty nine disapprove of his handling of the state budget. Huge numbers. He's just doing terribly. And worst off, as he's running for president or says he will be running for president, running for the Republican nomination, New Jersey voters say by a huge margin, 65 to 29 percent, that Governor Christie would not make a good president. These are the people who know them the best. And yet. He goes on Fox News with Megyn Kelly this week. I think it was on Monday uh, or Tuesday. She asks him about these numbers. Sixty five percent think he would not make a good president. Listen to Chris Christie's response.
2: The polls in New Jersey right now say by a 65 to 29 percent margin, the New Jersey voters say you would not make a good president. Now, they know you the best.
0: Why shouldn't we trust them? They want me to stay. A lot of those people in that 65 percent want me to stay. And I've heard that from lots of people at town hall meetings. Don't leave to run for president because we <laughs> want you to stay. But
1: they say you would not
0: make a good president. No, no I, I think people hear the question they want to hear. <laughs> no, uh, Governor, with all due respect, I think uh, people hear the answers they want to hear. They hear the answers to the poll question. ...questions that they want to hear. It's just amazing. Uh, 65 to 29 say he would not make a good president, and Governor Christie turns that into, well, that's because they want me to stay. They would miss me too much if I became president. It's just untethered from reality. Now, the uh, Newark Star-Ledger newspaper, largest newspaper in, in New Jersey, I believe... Uh, they endorsed Chris Christie in his reelection uh, uh, campaign back in 2013. They, endorsed, they supported Chris Christie. And here's their editorial this morning. Headline, Governor Christie loses his marbles on national TV. They write, for months, months, we have wondered how Governor Chris Christie thinks he can win the presidency when New Jersey is in such rotten shape after his six years in office, and now we may have our answer. The man has lost touch with reality. In a national TV interview Monday, Christie was asked to explain why 65% of New Jersey voters think he'd make a bad president. His answer, we love him so much that we want him to remain our governor. Now, uh, that's a paper that endorsed Chris Christie saying that he's lost touch with reality and, and not an op ed, not somebody It's actually the editorial board, the same editorial board that endorsed him in 2013. They go on to write that maybe he doesn't believe that himself. That might step on his core pitch about telling the truth, but it would at least tether him uh, to the planet Earth if he actually didn't believe it. The worry is that he really believes it, writes the Star-Ledger. Only one in three approve of his performance in the state, and even fewer believe he's coming clean about Bridgegate. They go on to say he needs to pour himself a drink and ask himself the tough question. Why don't people love me? It could be the rotten job market or the high property taxes or the crumbling transit system or the broken promise on pensions or the private jets or the Bridgegate indictments and so on. But it's no wonder that New Jersey is screaming a warning to the rest of the country. God forbid he gets a chance to make an even bigger mess on a larger stage, writes the Newark Star-Ledger, who says Chris Christie has lost his marbles. Kind of amazing, but it's bigger than just politics. This stuff matters. And the fact that we've lost touch with reality over the past decade or more really matters. And not just for politics, not just for presidential politics, but in our everyday lives and in our everyday discourse, which is why we talk about facts and reality, no matter whose ox gets gored, no matter how many Twitter trolls are disappointed by it. It matters. Because we've just spent... Uh, the last, where are we now, 12, 13 years since we launched this war in Iraq, uh, more than that since since 9 15 years since 9-11. We had an entire torture regime in power for a decade. No one has been held accountable for the torture, the war crimes, going to war for lies. All of this matters. And we've got talk radio. And Fox News, which has been out there saying, no, nobody. Would. What torture? Torture? That wasn't torture. That was a, a fraternity stunt. Waterboarding? That's just pouring some water over there. What do you mean? That's not torture. I would do it. Sean Hannity said he'd be waterboarded. And then someone, at can who was it, Keith Olbermann or somebody offered him $10,000 or something if he would be waterboarded. And, of course, we never heard Sean Hannity mention that again. But it matters. This week, on Monday, a Michigan man could face life in prison after he laid his girlfriend's five-year-old son out on a footstool and waterboarded him, police said. The man, uh, Michael A. Porter, uh, 30 years old, was arraigned Monday, held on 400000 bond on eight felony counts, including child abuse, imprisonment, and assault, according to records filed in Genesee County District Court in New York, in uh, Michigan. Mount Morris Police Chief Keith Becker said Porter told investigators that he used the torture tortuous. I don't even know how to say that. Tortuous interrogation. How do you say it? Torturous. They, they don't have an R in here. I don't know why they. They
1: misspelled it. Yeah,
0: they misspelled it because they're not used to even talking about torture. So, but it's not. Uh, it's not torture. It's just torturous, and a, a torturous interrogation technique on the boy because he'd ripped his backpack at school. Becker told. NBC station uh, of Flint, Michigan, the porter, quote, tied the five-year-old's hands up with a belt down by his side, put a garment over his head down below his nose, laid him on a footstool on his back and poured water over his throat, face and mouth. He waterboarded him. He tortured this boy. And you could say, oh, that's just one guy, just one uh, jackass in Michigan. Well. Earlier this month. A guy by the name of Dr. Melvin Morse, a Delaware pediatrician, filed an appeal of his 2014 conviction for waterboarding his 11-year-old stepdaughter. I had not heard about that case, so apparently this is something that's done, I guess. And why not? It's not torture. It's a fraternity prank, said Sean Hannity, said Rush Limbaugh. Nobody needs to be held accountable for it. That's not torture. This Delaware pediatrician who's now uh, appealing his case, I went back and looked it up, back in uh, 2014. Uh, he, he's a, a, a best-selling author. Um, he uh, was sentenced to three years back in 2014, and in this entire article in Reuters, they talk about the waterboarding. They never use the word torture or torturous or tortuous. They just never mention the word torture. Even though they talk about how the girl uh, who he... Uh, allegedly uh, tortured, uh, was uh, physically abused, including waterboarding. Uh, They they don't mention that it was torture. And this guy, by the way, Dr. Melvin Morse, uh, has appeared on Oprah and Good Morning America. And uh, he was found guilty of child endangerment charges back in 2012. He was uh, involved with torture. And until we say those words, until we not only say those words, but hold the people accountable for having done it, this is going to continue. Until then, we will remain untethered from reality unless we have guys like me, I guess, uh, speaking up about the truth. Last sentence of that Reuters article, by the way. No word about torture, but it says that waterboarding is typically associated with the interrogation of terrorism suspects waterboarding in general involves holding a cloth over a person's face and flooding it with water to simulate drowning we have got to get in touch with reality in this country we've got to get in touch with facts Or we're going to repeat the same issues over and over and over. We're going to go into wars that we shouldn't be going into. We're going to be crashing the economy that needn't be crashed. We're going to be doing nothing about climate change, despite all of the facts that exist to support all of these things. No matter if you like those facts, no matter what you think we should do about those facts, they are facts. We've got to stop untethering this nation from reality. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to head up to Scott Walkerville, where they are decidedly not re retethering to reality. In fact, they are taking the First Amendment and free speech and turning it upside down. And it's going to affect not just Wisconsin, but the entire nation. We're going to talk to Sue Wilson from the Media Action Center next. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Back to the Bradcast. Back to reality. Well, maybe, maybe not. We're heading up to Scott Walkerland, up in Wisconsin, where they seem to be turning reality on its head, just like they are everywhere else in this country at this point. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, In Wisconsin, they have a thing called John Doe investigations. Basically, when state prosecutors begin an investigation, their targets remain a secret until the indictments are announced. And there was one John Doe investigation in Wisconsin uh, concerning now Governor Scott Walker's rise to power when he was the county executive of Milwaukee County, running for governor and using county time and county paid staff to do political work that. Original John Doe investigation netted some, uh, I believe it was six convictions and guilty pleas from six top officials in the Walker administration. Remarkably, Walker himself avoided charges, all charges, even though the secret email system that was used to illegally do campaign work inside of uh, Walker's county executive office back then was just about 20 feet from uh, the doorway, uh, the entrance to his actual office. But somehow he said, oh, I had no idea this campaigning was going on in my office on county time. Six of his top uh, aides uh, weren't so lucky. Now, a second John Doe investigation has been underway for some time in Wisconsin. This uh, investigation is looking at Walker's recall campaign in 2012. And the reason we know What this is looking at is because the people who are sort of being targeted in this investigation have gone to court to claim that it is their rights that are being violated by this investigation. It was around the 2012 recall campaign when Scott Walker famously faced this incredibly contentious uh, recall election on the heels of uh, some legislation that he signed, stripping state union workers of many of their rights. The allegations... Uh, now uh, include a court coor- uh, coordination, basically, between the Walker campaign and a whole bunch of these so-called tax exempt nonprofit uh, groups or 501 C4s that appear to have been coordinating with the Walker campaign in violation of state laws. You've heard of all of this dark money, all of these PACs and super PACs. They are not supposed to coordinate with the actual candidate. And investigators in Wisconsin are looking into whether they did. It appears uh, they very well may have. Now, those nonprofits have been fighting subpoenas for their records, uh, claiming the investigation itself is an obstruction of their First Amendment rights, their free speech rights. They believe they can coordinate with whoever they want and that campaign laws such that we have any left in this country are somehow in violation of their rights. The Wisconsin Supreme Court will soon decide uh, on that, although the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court itself has been taken over by right wing ideologues over uh, recent years. But all of this ties back to a fight that first came to light in 2012 during that recall election and a complaint that forced the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, to make what I think is a disturbing decision that appears to be coming into play again today in the latest John Doe 2 case concerning talk radio. The even more remarkable part of this, perhaps, is how the Republican supporters of Walker continue to turn the First Amendment on its very head in order to make their claims, and how all of this... Could play an important role in national politics, not just for the uh, GOP presidential hopeful Scott Walker in the months ahead, but really for all of us, all of us who are concerned about how our airwaves, our public airwaves. Are now uh, have now been hijacked by uh, right-wing uh, campaigns, political campaigns, and corporations to plead their case over our public airwaves. Here to untangle, hopefully, some of this mess for us is Sue Wilson. She's a media activist, director of Public Interest Pictures Broadcast Blues documentary, and a 22-year Emmy Award-winning veteran of broadcast journalism. She's worked for CBS, PBS, Fox, NPR. She's the editor of the media criticism blog Sue Wilson Reports and the founder of MediaActionCenter.net. She's also a longtime contributing writer at The Brad Blog, where she wrote about all of this uh, once again this week for us at BradBlog.com. Sue Wilson, welcome back to The broadcast.
2: Well, thank you so much, Brad. Thank you for the good work that you continue to do.
0: You're very kind. Uh, thank you. And I, I hope that, that introduction made some sense. It's a really, really complicated story, and, and it's hard to wrap all of our brains around. So first, what I'd like you to do before we get to the latest is explain how we got to this place in regard to your group, Media Action Center, and how you forced the FCC to to make a very, I'm going to say, very disturbing ruling concerning talk radio and our public airwaves, uh, thanks to a petition that you filed uh, after the gubernatorial recall election in Wisconsin back in 2012.
2: Yeah, it was really a contentious time. And I think what we need to do is to wrap this entire issue into the fight for the First Amendment, into the fight for free speech. What, What... Media Action Center did in the middle of the 2012 recall campaign. And remember, that was only a 28-day campaign. It was very short. Mm-hmm. We had our volunteers actually uh, listen to the five local conservative radio hosts in the Milwaukee area, era, uh, area. excuse me. We've got five local radio hosts there who were putting supporters of Scott Walker onto their giant radio stations and allowing those people then to uh, campaign for the governor, for it you know, to make sure that Scott Walker was not recalled. Uh, so that was in,
0: just to restate that that was these uh, radio stations, radio giants, really in the Wisconsin uh, uh, area, WTMJ and WISN, and. It wasn't Scott Walker on the air we're talking about. It's guys like uh, Reince Priebus, who's now the head of the uh, uh, Republican National Committee. It was uh, people who were working for the Scott Walker campaign itself, who were going on air and recruiting volunteers asking for donations of money and so forth over our public airwaves, correct?
2: That is exactly right. Um, So what what the Media Action Center volunteers did, we had supporters of Scott... uh, we had supporters of Tom Barrett, the, the, the person who was running against Scott Walker. Right. These supporters then would contact WISN and WTMJ on a daily basis via email saying, I'm a supporter of the other guy. I, under this rule at the FCC called the Zapple Doctrine, I want some comparable time on these public airwaves that belong to all of us. We've got to be able to get our voices heard on these public airwaves as well. Well... To make a very long story short, the radio stations denied them time, the FCC failed to act, Um, Media Action Center then filed a petition to take the licenses away from these two radio stations, the Federal Communications Commission, um, after a very lengthy drawn-out process, decided that no it would go against the First Amendment rights of the broadcasters to force them to allow supporters of the other side on the air. So so (laughs) GOP supporters have First Amendment rights to be on the air. Democratic supporters do not have First Amendment rights to be heard. Our publicly owned airways.
0: Well, that's what the decision seemed to uh, seem to say was that, and all of this, by the way, goes back to the uh, the Communications Act, the requirement for equal time, the fairness doctrine, which was dissolved by Ronald Reagan back in the eighties. But. The existing rule that you referenced there, the Zappel Doctrine, required that if supporters of a candidate went on the air, then the opposing candidate, if their supporters requested time, they too could go on the air. But the FCC, in, in response to your complaint said, no, they no longer have that right. We did away with that, with the fairness doctrine. Uh, anyone can go on the air if they're allowed by the, uh, by the station owners, but we're, we're not going to require any of these station owners to put on uh, more than one party's uh, supporters if they want. And, and then the FCC said that this is a, a First Amendment victory. Correct. I, I mean, isn't that is isn't that exactly what they said in responding to your uh, to your complaint?
2: It, 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 it's astounding. And it, it's especially astounding because the airways, these precious radio airways, which are owned by all of us, uh, the FCC has effectively said that one entire segment of the population is denied access to beyond the airwaves that we all own. Uh, it, and they're calling; they're waving the flag of the First Amendment.
0: So, taking uh, away the First Amendment right from some people is a victory for the First Amendment, as, as seen by at least the Republican FCC Commissioner Ajit Pai, uh, who himself is a uh, he's a a right wing ideologue, and he's serving as FCC Commissioner. Sue, so let me let me read what he he wrote. Uh, just this one paragraph. You cited this in your article at Bradblog.com. Uh, Ajit Pai, who's an FCC commissioner, wrote at this right-wing website called RedState.com and and trumpeted the fact that they denied your complaint. He wrote, The end of the Zappel Doctrine presents an important lesson. There will always be someone eager to manipulate the levers of government to serve a political end. It is our responsibility to stand against such efforts and the tactics of political intimidation. We must continue to reject attempts to micromanage the marketplace of ideas and limit media choices. We must continue to empower consumers to make their own decisions and give news outlets the flexibility to make their own editorial judgments. And we must always stand up for the First Amendment, even when, especially when, it's controversial. So keeping supporters off the air for one party but not the other is standing up for the First Amendment. That comes directly from the FCC commissioner, Ajit Pai. I I just find his statement remarkable.
2: Well, it's the First Amendment for whom? And and certainly that brings us back to the Scott Walker case because what people don't realize is that in the middle of Wisconsin right now is a case that is going to decide First Amendment rights for this entire country. And it really gets back to the idea that money is the same thing as free speech. Uh, you know, that was a, a court decision many years ago called Buckley versus Vallejo, and many of us are, are very uncomfortable with this concept that uh, money is the functional equivalent of free speech. I think most of us intuitively know that that is incorrect. However, that is the law of the land, and we are, there's a huge battle going on right now as to the future of political elections and whether or not the people's free speech is more important or whether it is the free speech of donors who wish to funnel billions of dollars into campaigns
0: secretly. And that seems to have been what was done in in the recall election for Governor Scott Walker. Um, and the investigation which by the way is a state investigation the state of Wisconsin still has you know rules and laws concerning uh, coordinating between uh, so-called you know nonprofit uh, public interest groups and actual political campaigns and now these these uh, uh, so-called public interest groups are saying you can't even investigate us you can't even investigate if we coordinated with that political campaign because that itself is a violation of of our First Amendment free speech rights. It, it, do I understand this correctly? Is this what is now before the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Sue Wilson?
2: <laughs> Isn't it crazy? Uh, it, it, you're, you're very close. Uh, it, it is true that the, the groups are have made that case. Um, the good news is, is that... Well, let me back up a minute. You know, this invest, investigation has been going on for a very long time. Yes. And at one point in May, about a year ago... Uh, There was a judge there who decided to stop this entire investigation as to whether, I mean, and and, and let's make sure people understand exactly Mm -hmm. what this case is about. What they're saying is that Scott Walker, when he was the governor of the state, Mm -hmm. actively solicited donors, donors like Donald Trump, donors like the Home Depot co-founder, Ken Landown mm-hmm. and said, I need you to give lots and lots of money to this Wisconsin Club for Growth. Now, this is a uh, tax-exempt group, which in theory does not have to reveal its donors.
0: So he, he, didn't, he didn't ask for donations to his campaign? He asked for those donors to give their money to the Wisconsin Club for Growth, who do not have to disclose their donors?
2: Yes, and in fact, there's been some emails that have been released with court filings. We actually have emails in which Walker's aides are asking him to ask for six-figure contributions and to tell these donors that that this Wisconsin Club for Growth could accept corporate money and did not need to publicly, publicly report contributions.
0: They actually stress. He, he says that in I don't know if it's he, him or his campaign, but they actually stress that the donations if they're not given to the campaign itself but to one of these dark money groups they won't be disclosed and that was the line they were giving to donors hey give us as much as you want you don't have to worry about blowback because the fact that you gave us money will stay will remain a secret so long as you give it to these groups and they will then funnel it to us
2: right exactly you've got the groups who, who took this up to a, a federal court saying, mm-hmm. you know, they should not even be able to investigate us. We have our First Amendment rights, and this should, should not be investigated at all. Well, they got a judge there in the federal level uh, to agree with that. However, it went up to the Seventh Circuit Court, mm-hmm. and there Judge Frank Easterbrook no. <laughs> wrote that the federal judge who, who, who said, yes, stop this investigation, uh, he said that, that the federal judge had a concern about protecting the free speech rights of conservative politicians. But he said that did not justify the court's involvement. He said that state courts can conduct their own litigation. So he has sent it back to the state court there.
0: Now that, by the but, way, I should say, is good news, because Frank Easterbrook himself, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, we've talked about him on this show. We've talked about him at Bradblog.com. He himself is an ideologue. So the, the idea that he rejected uh, this notion that uh, state investigators can't investigate campaign uh, finance violations, that should be encouraging. But now it goes back to the hands of the Wisconsin Supreme Court which is uh, itself also a bunch of right-wing ideologues, or at least uh, not a bunch of, but a majority of at this point, how does this case and these claims about the First Amendment, which seem to me to be about the opposite of the First Amendment, Sue Wilson, but how do uh, these latest claims now tie back to the original complaint that you had concerning talk radio in, in 2012? Are the same characters involved in this latest investigation?
2: Well, isn't it interesting that um, the previous, the first John Doe 1 investigation Mm -hmm. revealed that one of the big radio talkers there in Milwaukee, his name is Charlie Sykes, uh, Charlie Sykes was directly coordinating with the Walker campaign in an earlier campaign. This was not the recall campaign Mm -hmm. that we were dealing with. But, you know, a lot of this stuff is so secret Uh, a few of these emails have leaked out, and we got a hold of one that proved that, indeed, the campaign is directly coordinating with a talk radio host who has a microphone that reaches five states, Uh, you know, a giant, giant microphone. Uh, So we know that much to be fact. Now, here's what we don't know. Um, We have discovered that there have been subpoenas issued with regard to the recall Uh, of 2012, the the 2012 recall, there have been subpoenas issued to Charlie Sykes and also to Sean Hannity. Now, we don't exactly know why. Uh, We do know that these subpoenas, hopefully we will be able to find out why, uh, but at at the end of the day, they're fighting like crazy to get this investigation to start again. I mean, what's happened is that the court stopped the investigation completely. Right. Now it's up to the Supreme Court to decide whether or not, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. to decide whether or not they can even go back and start this
0: investigation again. So the fight is to restart the investigation, including the subpoenas against uh, Charlie Sykes, WTMJ's Charlie Sykes, who was campaigning on air, which is perfectly allowable, apparently, according to the FCC, and a subpoena of Sean Hannity, who, it, for folks who don't know, he's not just a, a Fox News host. He also has a Fox News radio show that plays for uh, three hours a day, and he was going crazy in favor of Scott Walker during the, uh, during the campaign, once again, over our public airwaves. And the question is, why were Sykes and Hannity subpoenaed? And uh, will will that subpoena ever be seen through, uh, or will the uh, courts block the investigation from even happening in the first place?
2: Well, I can tell you that the uh, special prosecutor, whose name is Francis Schmitz in Wisconsin, is fighting like crazy. Um, it, there was a filing that he made that was unsealed just last week, a uh, 275-page brief, uh, which basically the prosecutor is saying they have not been able to file charges yet because they don't know what they've got. They were the the the, the court stopped them from investigating completely, uh, citing First Amendment rights. Yeah. Here's something else that I found really interesting. Okay. Um, the the groups who are being investigated, and 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 the big one again is Wisconsin Club for Growth, and he's run it's run by a, a man named Eric O'Keefe. Mm-hmm. Eric O'Keefe has been leaking a lot of this information to the Wall Street Journal. All right.
0: Um, which is owned by Fox News' Rupert Murdoch, and so which is basically pleading uh, the case for the right-wingers in Wisconsin. Go ahead. Uh,
2: well, what's really interesting is he's been leaking information saying that the targets of investigation had their homes raided at dawn, law enforcement officers turning over their belongings to, and they're seizing files and seizing computers, and then the law enforcement officers are telling them that you may not talk about this there is a gag order on your evening talking about what has happened here. Now, on the face of it, I think a lot of us who look you know, out for prosecutorial misconduct mm-hmm. go, wait a minute, what's that about? Well, first of all, I mean, this is akin to a grand jury investigation where all of the investigation is you know, strictly secret. But here's what's really interesting. You've got Eric O'Keefe complaining publicly about the tactics used by prosecutors, but Easterbrook writes that... The state court entered a comprehensive order regulating disclosure of documents in the John Doe proceedings, and it also issued a gag order, forbidding subpoenaed parties to talk about what was happening. Here's the interesting part. No one has challenged that order. So the judge is not even addressing its propriety. If, Brad, if they had gone to the, uh, the, 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 the federal court mm-hmm. and said, you know, there's investigating us and and our First Amendment rights are being violated because we're not even allowed to talk about the investigation. One might understand how they're getting a First Amendment case out of this, but what's happening is that they're litigating this in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, and at the same time, they're not even complaining about that issue in court because they know that it's a dead horse.
0: i I got to get out here, uh, Sue, we're running a bit long, but it's it's just remarkable. Uh, and and your headline at, at Bradblog.com on this, Scott Walker and GOP turning First Amendment rights upside down. The FCC's blow to free speech rights you probably never heard about and how if Republicans have their way, it may get even worse. People should check that out because this entire fight I know it's convoluted. I know it's difficult to follow. And that's one of the reasons I think you're not hearing a lot about it in the mainstream media. But it will affect not just the fight in Wisconsin, but everywhere and how uh, campaigns are allowed to coordinate or not with these groups in secret or not. And uh, like I say, not just for uh, Scott Walker, who himself will be running for president for the uh, nomination in the Republican Party. It's just it's mind blowing and it's incredible. That uh, America and, and US media does not hear more about it when you've got a guy who's about to run for president who who may be himself indicted in this uh, scheme. Who knows? Sue Wilson, uh, mediaactioncenter.net, and of course at bradblog.com. You should follow her on the Twitters, by the way, at Sue Blues Wilson. And you can check out Media Action Center at mediaactioncenter.net. Sue, Thank you for uh, sticking on this story. Stay with it, please, uh, because it's, I think it's really important and way, way bigger than, than Scott Walker and Wisconsin.
2: Free speech for everybody, Brad. Free speech for everybody.
0: Yeah, that's the same thing the Republicans say, Sue. I don't know who to believe anymore. Right. <laughs> you
2: can believe me. You can believe me. <laughs> I, will, I will indeed.
0: All right, thank you, Sue Wilson. We're going to take a, a quick break and come back with much more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned welcome back to your broadcast we are running long so we've got just a few minutes here uh coming up on the green news report Tomorrow, uh, we will have more details on this uh, pipeline spill up in Santa Barbara. Uh, The uh, pipeline company now says up to, and mind you, this is coming from the pipeline company, so take it with that grain of salt that it's worth. Uh, up to 105 gallons of oil might have spilled from that uh, from that pipeline up near Santa Barbara, Desi, Diane.
1: I know. It's it's uh, depressing as hell because it's stuff that just doesn't go away. You know, they can clean up all they want, but it ain't going to help anybody. And you
0: know? as we always like to say, uh, nobody ever—you uh, never see solar spills. You never see explosions on wind farms. Nope. Uh, and so that will have uh, more detail, I, I have no doubt, on tomorrow's Green News Report and also this just in— Plaintiffs in the 2010 Gulf oil spill reach a 211 million dollar settlement with rig owner Transocean. Uh, 211 million dollars uh, is that is that enough?
1: I, I would say no. I mean, that's <laughs> five states along the Gulf Coast, and there are millions of people that were affected, both directly and indirectly by the economic disruption that the BP oil spill caused. But, hey, you know, they've reached a settlement, so I guess it depends on now if the judge agrees. Well,
0: if the judge agrees and if they decide to fight it. Because I didn't they also come to a settlement in the ExxonMobil case that they fought for 10 or 20 years, or was that not a settlement? That, that was wasn't a, a settlement.
1: That was a conviction, and that was appealed by Exxon.
0: And this is all just, by the way, within the past hour or so. These are breaking headlines, coincidentally, on the Gulf oil spill in 2010, uh, on the uh, new oil spill up in Santa Barbara, and speaking of California, <clears throat> California to decide whether uh, farmers will have to cut back on their water usage amidst this uh, worst drought that we're in the middle of out here. Worst drought on in recorded history out here in California, which kind of underscores one of the points I wanted to raise. And I guess we're just not going to have time. But uh, today, Desi Doyen, there were protests um, at a major uh, at Nestle bottling plants here in Los Angeles and up in Sacramento. What are they bottling in those plants, Does Water. Yeah. Water. They're actually, we are in the middle of the worst drought in history and Nestle is allowed somehow to bottle up our water under the name Arrowhead and other names and sell it out of the state. How yeah. does that happen? Yep. I, I, I can't even imagine how that continues. We're being asked uh, as... Uh, Uh, you know, the the non-corporate entities to reduce our water by 25 percent, which is good. We should. But uh, we only use 20 percent of the water in the state. 80 percent is used by uh, farmers, agriculture and corporations like apparently Nestle, who are bottling up this drinking water and sending it out of state. It is insane. So I'm sure we'll be covering uh, that and more on tomorrow's Green News Report. And uh, good Lord, who knows what we'll we'll be doing on the Bradcast. Other than that, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, as always, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Sue Wilson of MediaActionCenter.net. Brother, we'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel, tomorrow, well-tethered to reality. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebook at the brad blog and of course at bradblog.com i'm brad friedman good luck world